Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, just a quick reminder here at the top of the show about the Other People app. This show, this podcast has its own official app. It's free. It's the Other People app. It's free. Get it wherever you get your apps for free. Did I mention that it's free? You get the app onto your device, and when you do that, the most recent 50 episodes of the program will be waiting for you free of charge. The most recent 50 for free, new episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline, and you can favorite your favorite episodes. It's very user-friendly. So 50 episodes for free, the most recent 50 for free. And then if you want to get at the deep archives, if you want access to all of the episodes, you can sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's very cheap. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month, and you get access to everything. Hundreds of conversations with great writers like Sheila Hetty, Ben Fountain, Scott McClanahan, Jess Walter, Jerry Stahl, Tal Lynn, Chloe Caldwell, Cheryl Strayed, Tom Parada, Jonathan Lethem, Susan Orlean. The list goes on. It's the Other People app. Go get the app for free. And then if you want access to everything, if you want to support the podcast, sign up for a premium subscription. I would appreciate that. Thank you. Let's get started. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just All one time. Right, folks, right. again, this right. is it. This is other people. This is ideally suited for those of you who are in transit. This is two people talking in a hot, filthy room. How's it going? What's happening out there? Seriously, what's happening out there? My guest today is Matt Summel. He's got a novel and stories out. Oh, I'm Brad Listy. Did I say that already? The person at the top of the show in the uh, announcements. The uh, sultry female voice that introduces me in every episode. Already told you that I'm Brad Listy, but I'll say it again. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. My guest today is Matt Summel. He's got a novel and stories out. It's called Making Nice. It's available from Henry Holt. It's generating huge buzz, earning lots of plaudits, and uh, I had a great time talking with Matt. He came over, he sat down, we talked. So uh, I'm in kind of a hurry. Can you hear it in my voice? I got a lot going on right now. Got a new baby in the house, got a, a, a lot of childcare responsibilities because my wife had a C-section. She can't drive, things like that, I'm trying to juggle it all, trying to make it happen. Got a very narrow window of time in, in which to do this. I'm under pressure. Got one shot at this, one take. 
I also have been getting a lot of mail. I'm way behind on mail. I'm going to try to catch up today. Uh, before I begin, I just want to say uh, kind of a general uh, thank you once again. I know I've said this before, but I feel the need to say it again. Thank you to everybody for all the kind words regarding the uh, birth of my uh, boy, River. Appreciate that. It's been very, uh, very heartwarming and very appreciated. So uh, I'm going to work through as much of this mail as I can uh, relatively quickly. And then we'll get to the conversation with Matt Summel. Uh, I love getting letters from you guys. I'll say it right now. If you want to email me, let me know your thoughts. Tell me a story. Whatever it is, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. So uh, I got a letter from uh, Patrick over in Limerick, Ireland. He writes to me sometimes. And uh, this particular email is regarding death. He says, hello, Brad. On an intellectual level, I agree. We are stardust. Everything is of itself. The seemingly infinite patterns in nature on a leaf or on our skin at a cellular level bear this out. But when I think of what happens to consciousness, and then in parentheses, he writes flatline, question mark. I am still filled, I'm still filled with existential dread. Signed, Patrick. Yeah, it's hard not to feel that. At least sometimes. I go in and out with death. You know, sometimes I feel good about it. I'm like, okay, everybody does this. Everything does this. Every living creature, every living thing on earth. Life and death, they happen at the same time. They are interrelated. There's no such thing as death. There's no such thing as something becoming nothing. There's no such thing as nothing becoming something. First law of thermodynamics, that's where my brain is at with it intellectually. And yet... Uh, I can still have moments of uh, deep fear when I think about exiting. I think we all do that, most of us anyway. Though I do hold out hope that there are some people in this world, and there have been people in this world, who have uh, faced death with uh, total grace, real comfort, and wisdom. That's got to be possible, right? Please tell me that's possible. That's what I'm aiming for. No fear. Or at least fear that can be uh, managed well taken care of fear that does not overwhelm i kind of feel uh i think i read somewhere once or i heard someone say once that maybe this is like the tibetan book of the dead or something about reincarnation or whatever it is transitioning into the next phase transitioning uh from life to death that the state of mind that you're in at the moment of death is crucial and the best state of mind to be in is one of uh, gratitude try to be grateful as you're dying if you can pull that off you don't have to be happy, but you can be grateful. I think that's, I think that's doable. No one's ever going to be happy when they're dying, unless you know, you're, you're miserable and you've been suffering a, you know, a horrible illness or something, or you're just a miserable person. Maybe you could be happy to leave, but I sort of doubt it. I think people who are miserable and want out in some sort of suicidal way aren't happy when they die. They're miserable when they die. I'm talking about, uh, some sort of uh, deep peace slash gratitude feeling. Try to conjure that up. Try to you know stay focused on your breathing. Don't let fear thoughts overwhelm. That's what I'm going for. I hope I can pull it off. I'm practicing for that. I think you got to practice. So thank you, Patrick. Uh, next letter is a uh, listener named Tim who writes, uh, Dear Brad, thanks very much for the really enjoyable interview with David Yulin in episode number 368. Interestingly, my experience of moving to New York City 
is not all that different from David's introduction to Los Angeles. Almost exactly a year after I arrived in New York, 9-11 happened, and I could feel myself almost instantly grafted into the city. David's description of watching armored trucks roll through his Los Angeles neighborhood, uh, and just parenthetically, this is during the uh, riots. I think it was the Rodney King riots. And so then Tim continues, the shock of it, and at the same time, the sense of identification with the place itself produced by it brought fresh to mind standing on my Brooklyn rooftop on that bright, clear late summer morning watching smoke bilge from the towers as bits of scorched paper landed on us like snowfall. I don't know if the feeling consciously registered at the time, but in many respects, that is what that is when I became for the rest of my life and uh, wherever I come to lay my head, a New Yorker. Best wishes, Tim. As if on cue, there is an aircraft passing over my uh, garage so thanks uh thank you tim i mean i would hate to think that uh, a person's sense of place and home would have to uh would require uh, like that kind of cataclysmic tragedy in order to uh, cement itself i don't think that's the case sometimes it's just a matter of time but i can see how you know uh, david being a part of uh you know being in los angeles when the riots happened and then Tim being in uh, Brooklyn for 9-11. Definitely that, uh, that ties you to a place. I don't have anything like that. I'm going to knock on wood. <laughs> uh, you know, it's lovely to have a sense of uh, belonging. But I'm to, to be honest with you, I, I would prefer not to uh, get mine that way. People ask me where I'm from. I always say Milwaukee because that's where I was born. And I have very fond memories of being like a young boy, a young child in Wisconsin, running around. These were the days when, like, you could just leave your house. You're like, you know, seven years old. You leave your house at, like, you know, daybreak, and then, like, you just come home for dinner. It was that kind of childhood, running around in the woods, fishing in the creek. It's kind of, you know, Mayberry. And then I guess I feel that way about Los Angeles. I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere, and I definitely feel like this is home as much as any place is home. And hopefully I never, uh, you know, hopefully I won't be, you know, witness to some sort of horrible uh, catastrophe like 9-11 or the riots. But who knows? Thanks, Tim, for uh, writing. And then uh, finally I got a letter from a listener named Andy in Houston, Texas. He writes, Dear Brad... Uh, angry literature in my mind means literature that intentionally confronts specific social or political happenings without concern for making readers uncomfortable. Some might be rendered more violently than others, but angry literature has a well-intentioned agenda behind it. Writers like Richard Wright, Zora Neale Hurston's James Baldwin and Simon Ortiz, uh, come to mind. And for obvious reasons, I think it's no coincidence that all are minorities and political activists of some kind. Is it Simone Ortiz? Did I get that right? It's not Simon Ortiz. Apologies, I think. So uh, Andy continues, it seems that social media has become the new medium for civil rights discourse. And while social media can create dialogue quickly and effectively, it can just as often end in short vitriolic exchanges. And the reason for this movement is fairly clear. Novels, hell, even poems, short stories and essays take years to write and even more time uh, awaiting publication while a tweet can be written and published in three to five seconds. Therefore, I ask you this, Brad, 
How can literature compete with social media for a place in difficult conversations? Further, in your mind, what examples of angry literature am I missing? Tell me. I'd love to read them. Best, Andy. Yeah, social media is really the place for anger. If you're pissed off about something, you want to let people know about it, just go to Twitter or, uh, I guess, Facebook or wherever. And you know what? I think there's a, there's something good about it. Just the messy dialogue is probably net positive. Even if it's annoying, like it's good that it's annoying you. It's good that it's annoying me. It's good that I'm hearing people uh, talk about how the police are harassing them and they, uh, you know, they feel threatened and unsafe and they feel uh, traumatized. Yeah, it's not something that's a uh, comfortable to bear witness to, but if it weren't for social media, I don't think that stuff would be at the fore. So in a way, it almost, you know, they always say that journalism is the first draft of history. I feel like social media is maybe like uh, preceding that. Social media is like the first draft of journalism. And then obviously we work our way to books. So when you ask how literature can compete, I'm not necessarily sure if it should, but what I think literature can do is clarify and I, somehow we've got to find a way to, to reach people and to make sure that they're aware of the value of those clarifications. It's not enough to just read social media to get your ideas. We need to go deeper than that. That's what books do. They're not, rea you know, they're not reactive or uh, reactionary. What's the word? You know what I mean? They're more considered, meditative, more time has been spent, more perspectives considered. Emotions have cooled one would think it's vital it's slow food whereas social media and uh, journalism to maybe a little bit lesser extent is fast food we know that right not that there can't be great journalism long-form journalism in particular but you know we live in a world of a 24-hour news cycle social media is even more compressed than that and literature shouldn't try to compete in a one-to-one -one way it should it's something else entirely but where, where it needs to compete, um, I guess it's, you know, I mean, maybe it does need to compete for people's attention. The value of books. The value of uh, long, considered, meditative responses. The time it takes to ingest such things. We need to make sure that our, our culture understands that that's valuable. And that that's a uh, that's something that as a as a society we hold up high. That's kind of what this show and what a lot of uh, literary ventures out there, you know, online and elsewhere. It's easy to sort of uh, be self-deprecating uh, about it and to speak of oneself in in, a con in the context of literature and a you know specifically American literature as being sort of hopelessly peripheral. But it's a good fight, it's something to be proud of. cultural slow food something to be proud of there's worse things you can do there's worse ways to spend your time and uh to answer andy's uh question about examples of angry literature you know i you know just on the spot i'm I, i'm not great at, at uh answering questions like this like listicles or whatever but i always feel like celine uh louis ferdinand celine is you know he's kind of like the uh pinnacle of angry literature for me journey to the end of the night and death on the installment plan. 
I've talked about him on this show. I'll talk about him again in the near future probably. He's one of my favorite authors, even though, uh, you know, some of his uh, personal political behavior and whatnot was deeply questionable, particularly in the second half of his life. But Journey and Death on the Installment Plan, deeply moral books, deeply angry books, deeply funny books. I think that uh, maybe the best angry literature is uh, dark comedy. That's my taste anyway, because I feel like it alchemizes the anger. I'm not saying there isn't a place for, oh, Hunter S. Thompson. Perfect, uh, you know, uh, example of this in the context of American literature. Maybe the funniest angry writer ever, for my money anyway, when he was on his game. But, you know, you have pure rage literature, angry, dark, just, you know, dystopian or whatever. But I think when you uh, when you can find a way to be darkly funny, you alchemize it a little bit, it becomes transcendent. Give people a, a way of reframing it. I don't know. I need a little uh, I need a little spoonful of sugar, or I need to just like laugh darkly. I need very skilled mockery. Like I feel like. You know, a writer like Hunter S. Thompson, he just obliterates. He, there's a great quote from him that I'll paraphrase really terribly, but it's, you know, like writing is your weapon. Use it to like, you know, hammer your enemies into oblivion or, you know, how he used to talk. Very manly, like alpha male literary guy, but funny as hell and very sharp. He picked the right enemies for, you know, for what it's worth, in my opinion. And there's many more. I hope that kind of answers it. Thanks for writing, Andy. Thanks for writing, everybody. And again, uh, my thanks for all the good wishes. I appreciate it. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest, once again, is Matt Summel. His novel and stories is called Making Nice. It's available now from Henry Holt and Company. Let's get to the conversation. Uh, let's, let's just do it. This is Matt Summel. But, well, I was just reading about that dude. He's in the art of motorcycle maintenance. Robert Persig. Okay. Yeah. Right. Isn't that Body his name? Pants. I'm just saying. What the? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, and he was saying nobody wants to get buried with their iPad. Like, you have to interact with the world. Right. On its, so all this technology, like I look at my phone, I'm like, God, I got this iPhone. Yeah. And then I get pissed about the iPhone. I know. So I'm like, 
Why does your iPhone have four bars and mine has three? Fuck my iPhone. Well, on the phone, like in the phone, like the, I always feel this, I do feel like a certain desire for every new iteration of the iPhone, mostly because of the camera. I want the new camera. Well, you got a baby. I got a baby. Exactly. So they're smart that way. I think this whole campaign, like the billboard campaign where they're showing like those photos that say taken with an iPhone six. Oh, really? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Have you seen those? You got to get a drone. You gotta, I'm you gotta gonna, get a drone. You fly it over your kid's <laughs> crib and shit. <laughs> Just trail them wherever they go, taking yeah. their photo. But anyway, um, I can get very, I can get very pissed off about how technology has overrun my life. But then uh, the flip side of that is that I will sometimes feel silly for being pissed off about it because it provides uh, so much convenience, connectivity that I otherwise wouldn't have, the ability to document my life and my child's life. Right. Uh, that, that stuff is cool. It's got its upsides and its downsides. It depends how you use it. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. I, I just think, I mean, for me, there's just a base level of frustration. And I, I sort of try to tackle some of these things in the book, actually, because I, it is ridiculous. Um, but I, my brain kind of works like an autoimmune disease. And I, I don't know if writing has something to do with that where you, there you go, hitting the thing. But if you, um, you write a sentence and then you attack it, right? So it's like all of a sudden your your brain is trained to sort of look for problems. You do that for a decade and then... A decade later, that's like sort of how the, like the neural pathways work in your brain. You look for issues. And so like I'm like, yeah, I have this great piece of technology in my hand, this iPhone, this whatever, this, this laptop. How is it killing me? Yeah, look at this <laughs> fucking thing. It's just not working where I want on the top of this mountain. No, so I mean, that's interesting that you say that about your writing, though. Like when you sit down to write, you, you work uh, slowly? Like I'm the slowest. Sentence by sentence. Yeah. Picking it apart. Yep. Trying to find the... A lot of self-aggression over here. Okay. A lot of aggression, but I, a lot of self-aggression. I also read, uh, I read you say something in an interview. It was like a print interview. You said, you know, like that your motto was make them laugh and then make them cry or something like that. Get them laughing, then make them cry. It was Mark Richard. Um, I don't know if you know his work, Fish Boy and Ice at the Bottom of the World. He's awesome. Uh, he was a visiting writer at Irvine when I was there. Okay. And um, I asked him for advice because I was, you know, struggling like I always struggle. And he said, oh, it's easy, man. You just make them laugh and break their fucking hearts. There you go. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so I guess that's something that I aim for. But like on a sentence-by-sentence sentence level. On a sentence-by-sentence sentence level. And I've my process has changed a lot Like from when I started. I think I, you know, I was editing as I went, which was crippling. Like I'd write a sentence and then I'd, I'd spend, you know, hours trying to make that sentence right before I move on to the next sentence. Um, and I didn't give myself permission to suck. Plus, you're, te- yeah, you're tearing stuff down. That before, you don't even need, yeah. Before you have it, because I think this is the thing. Like, you wind up uh, either making the writing overwrought or you never give yourself a chance to make any progress. Like, the thing is just constantly caving in on itself because you keep knocking it down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm I actually, do. That's what uh, I do. That's, that's <laughs> what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for this Esquire story, I'm, like, months late on. You write for, like, you've published a lot in Esquire. A few. How did that happen? Uh, well, after they rejected me, because they rejected a lot, too. You were just slush piling? Just sending them in? Yeah, actually, it was Mark Richard who's, who's, wait, was it Mark Richard who sent it to Esquire? No, he sent it to uh, Harper's. He sent a story to Harper's. Um, I think I was, yeah, I mean, initially I was slush piling everywhere. Um, and I started getting lucky. Actually, it's a really interesting story. Again, Mark Richard, when I, when I first started sending stuff out, he was like, you know, Matt, I started at the top and I never looked back. You know, I never looked back. I just, I published at Harper's first or something like that or, you know, somewhere up there. Um, and I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do, man. I want to start at the top and never look back. I'm just going to, you know. And um, so I started just 
accumulating rejections very quickly. So what was like, what's embedded in that advice? The advice is like, don't bother uh, submitting to like the littler places to go for the big fish. That I think he was just telling me what his path was. I think that's I, a pretty I good I, path. Yeah, it's a great path <laughs> if you're Jesus. that if you're that talented. Yeah. Um, and so I had that in mind, and I kept like submitting my stories to places who had no interest in me whatsoever. And um, and then a friend of a, a friend of mine named um, Hugh Merwin out in New York just handed my stories to some friends of his at Brooklyn College who were running the Brooklyn Review, and they wanted one. And I initially I was like. No, man, I'm starting at the top and I'm never looking back. No, no way you can't have this. I didn't even submit this. No way. Yeah. And then I asked Mark, you know, he was persistent. Uh, and then I asked Mark what he thought. And he goes, don't be an idiot, Matt. Of course you give it to them. They're in, New, in, they're in New York and you never know who they're going to be. They want your story. They're going to be grateful for it. And you never know who they're going to become. Those guys went on to start Electric Literature. Oh, my God. Yeah. Andy well, Hunter and Scott Lindenbaum. Yeah. And... Um, and they've been champions of mine ever since. So they, they published me in electric literature. They introduced me to or, or introduced my work to Lauren Stein at the Paris Review. They introduced me to my agent, Nicole Raji, who, you know. Good agent. Great agent. Uh, amazing. And and she, you know, I don't know. I think that's what I've been, like Esquire had said no to a couple of things on my own. But when she submitted it, they seemed to take a renewed interest. That You know, that that's where it makes a difference. It does. You know, because they have those relationships and certain agents, I feel like. Um, you know, they have that kind of reputation. If they're representing something, people are going to pay attention because they know it's going to be of a certain quality. Right, right. Uh, so I've been tremendously lucky with having her. Okay, well, let's let's go backwards, okay? Okay. Um, well, first of all, where are you from? You sound like you're from back east. I am. Yeah. I'm from Long Island, all right. New York. A right. town called Oakdale. And how was, uh, how was that growing up? I loved it. Uh, you know, it wasn't, I don't think it's the typical Long Island. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. There were meatheads around and stuff like that, but... Um, like you into Billy Joel? Is that kind of is it that kind of thing? Yes, I just made one. For, I made a, uh, a a playlist for Large Hearted Boy. Billy Joel's on there. Mr. Long Island himself. You know, he tried to kill himself with Lemon Pledge once or something. Yeah, yeah. But it was yeah. like I, th- I mean, I read about that in an interview he did, and he was like, it, he he tried to like downplay it. He was like, it was kind of a weak attempt. Like it wasn't. He didn't come close. Like yeah. It, Kind of drank some pledge and then just like felt shitty and maybe went to the doctor. Yeah, or whatever. Because of like some early thing he released wasn't a huge success. Yeah, yeah. But he, I, uh, did you read that New Yorker uh, profile of him recently? No. How he's doing that concert like once a month in Manhattan down at uh, Madison Square Garden. I didn't know this. And it's like a, a chopper like picks him up at his Long Island like mansion, <laughs> flies him into Midtown. Because he can't drive anymore. Well, he can, but. Yeah, he, he doesn't need to wrecking his car right or his motorcycles or whatever but yeah the point is that like he lives this really like sort of placid i mean guy's 60 65 or something you know years old so yeah. he's, he's slowing down he lives like a very placid slow easy life 29 days a month and then one day a month a chopper picks him up takes him into madison square garden and he's like he compared himself to like genghis khan or something you walk out there and there's like <laughs> everyone's i mean it's a pretty good gig it's a great gig i i really like the profile of him that that stern howard stern did you know how he's on stern all the time yeah but didn't he do something for like the howard stern uh like ce- birthday celebration of course yeah, yeah he was on i remember that yep and then they did a whole billy joel show where all these like other pop artists sang Billy Joel songs and stuff like that. I don't know. I, yeah. I grew up listening to Billy Joel. He's in all the jukeboxes and all the bars I used to hang out in. And, right. Well, that's and, okay. Know, it's nice to hear you. On. It's nice to hear you embrace because I feel like sometimes people, you know, they grow up in a certain place and there is a artist or a kind of music that's connected to that region 
And I feel like people either, you know, accept it or reject it. It doesn't seem like there's usually middle ground. It's like they either embrace it or it's like, fuck that guy. Yeah. You know, I don't want anything to do with that. I think that. I've probably been a little bit of both over the years, but like looking back now, I'm like, no, I actually, I like this stuff. I was, I don't, you know, I think Chuck Klosterman wrote like a definitive essay on like the appeal of Billy Joel to, and I think it's like my generation, your generation, we're the same age, like we're uh-huh. 39 years old. Like there was something about that he wrote, and I'm paraphrasing badly, that, you know, about why uh, Billy Joel was appealing to young men, you know, in their early adolescence in like the late 80s early 90s or whatever it was mid 80s right but like there was a period of my life i bought every single billy joel album and i had it on cassette tape cassette, and I, nice. I, I i was I, I i knew everything about him every word to every one of his songs uh-huh what what is it about his music that appeals it's catchy man i don't know and I, I, angry young man i mean I, captain I, I, jack captain jack <laughs> will get me by tonight <laughs> Down East or Alexa? I mean, see, he started to lose me when he got into Stormfront. Like, Down East or Alexa. <laughs> that was where he started to like, wear, yeah. sun, wear sunglasses all the time. I was like, what is he doing? Uh-huh. Did a lot of cocaine in the 80s. Okay. I think he did. Well. Seemed like a lot of cocaine. Uh, why not? Yeah. <laughs> Billy Joel. Billy Joel. Well, now Gene Ween is singing Billy Joel songs. Did you see this? No. He's like, he does, he, he goes out, he actually, they look alike now. And he, Wait, who's Gene Ween? From Ween, man. Oh, from Ween. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Gene Ween and and Diener, Diener Ween. Okay. But you know they broke up. <laughs> yeah. You know I think Gene Ween is is singing Billy Joel covers. That's it. I think. As a uh, as a thing. As a thing. Okay. And it's good, and there's video of it. On but YouTube. you know what? There's gonna be there's gonna be room. I find that there are certain like uh, musical acts like the. You ever seen Super Diamond? No. Okay, Super Diamond. Like Neil Diamond is an is a comparable act. There's a a strange kitsch. And uh, widespread uh, affection and like cross generational affection uh-huh. for his music. And when somebody gets to that level, uh, same thing with like Dark Star Orchestra with the Grateful Dead. Right. You have these bands that form where they just are like, you know, uh, impersonators essentially. Uh huh. And they play that music. Yeah. And they make a shit ton of money. I always see those things on like Sunset Boulevard. It's like, yeah. Uh, yeah, they have all those like 80s bands. And I just went for the 4th of July, I went to this. Um, I guess you call it a young person's party. I don't know. I ended up on the west side over there in Santa Monica. Uh-huh. And there was a DJ, uh, this girl, Haley, who I know. Uh, and she was just like spinning 80s and 90s songs, like, and somewhat ironically. But I was like, no, I really grew up to these fucking songs, and they are awesome. What are you, what, are yeah. you making fun? What are you doing? Yeah. Like, was this know. ironic? Okay, here's a question. I had this posed to me the other day, and I had a very emphatic response. I just want to see if we're in agreement. Okay. Which was the better uh, decade musically, the 80s or the 90s? God. <laughs> that's so tough. I mean, look, the 80s are like, that's when I that's that's when I came up. The 86 Mets, I mean, that was, that like was your... prime time. And that's when you're like, I think you're most influenced, yeah, right? So yeah. like, but what, what, it was happier music in the 80s. I love, I, I said the 80s. Yeah. I'm going to go the 80s. I think the, the 80s were an awesome decade of, mm-hmm. for music. It was just an awesome decade. It holds up. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, like the new wave, like the very tail end of uh, punk. But I was into grunge. Yeah, grunge in high school. I mean, but yeah, I don't know, man. I, like, it, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't hold up as much. Well, Nirvana does, but like Nirvana Soundgarden. Did. and Yeah, like, that's the Pearl Jam, kind of. I mean, maybe. Helmet. I, I like Helmet. Yeah. I don't eh? know what what else did I listen to. Stomp box. <laughs> I, I was out of it a little bit, but the '80s when I listen to it now, I uh-huh. feel like holds up better. Okay, it evokes something for me. Maybe that's the innocence of childhood. I think so. It could I be think it has something to do with it. Um, okay, so speaking of innocence of childhood, mm-hmm. let's talk some more about Long Island. You grow up there. 
You, uh, what do your parents do? My father uh, is in prosthetics and orthotics. In what? Prosthetics and orthotics. He makes like shoe inserts. He make, no, he makes artificial legs. Okay. And arms. Himself. And yeah, he would like craft them. He designs them. Yeah. Uh, well, now they're all myoelectric and high tech, but you can buy the components like in Germany, right? From like Autobach. Uh-huh. We actually visited the the factory over there one time. Okay. On a business trip. But, you know, he really did lose his leg on a Harley when he was 19. He got hit by a bus. Oh, shit. Uh, they covered him with a sheet. He was gargling blood. His leg was knocked off. Oh, and God. Coma for 90 days, you know, whatever. And then he. Wait, come- what happened? He was just in, a, in an accident, got hit? Yeah, he was uh, he was in the navy, uh-huh. and they they dispatched him to go pick up um, someone who was who was getting in trouble with the MP, someone who was like drunk at the bar, and you know I think the commanding officer came out and said like, hey, who has a car? And my dad just said, I don't, but I have a, a Harley. I got a, I got my bike, and they went, look, go get him. Uh, otherwise, he's going to get arrested. So he went to. Um, to the bar, but I guess since he, he was on subs and since he'd gone out and come back, they had changed an intersection or something like that. I'm not really quite sure, but you know, he ran this light and he just got, uh, he T-boned a, a, a bus. Ugh. Um, and he wasn't wearing a helmet. Oh, fuck. And, uh, you know, had his head crushed in and frontal lobe damage, you know, the whole thing. Did he recover like mentally? Yes. I mean, clearly the guys are making prosthetics and well, he still uses it as an excuse to act like a fucking maniac. <laughs> you know, and he still he's like goes to the VA all the time and gets Ritalin, and he just like you know powers through his day on on you know methylphenidate. Yeah. But uh, uh, he look, he did he did um, what I think is like this amazing trick in life is where you take these. You know, Jeffrey Wolf said this to me: graduate school, use the good luck of bad luck. And so he started working for the VA after he lost his leg and um, learned learned the trade. Yeah. And then he ended up opening up his own his own place with a partner, and they they were successful for like thirty something years. And that's awesome. Orthopedics, yeah. That's pretty cool, and it's also not only it's not not only successful uh, financially, but also like it's a nice thing to be doing. Yeah, he actually really does love to help people. And, well, yeah, yeah. You know, it's he made, meaningful. He made a um, an artificial leg for a, a a girl's a little girl's pet chicken. Okay. Yeah. Like the, a fox had gotten into the house, the hen house or something like that, and shoot off a chicken's leg, and he like would spend like a day or two like figuring out how to give this chicken a, a fake leg. <laughs> and I think he also did it for a horse as well. Okay, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and then what about your mom? She was an RN. All right. Uh, and, Another noble profession. And uh, and a Lamaze instructor. Okay. Yeah. So there was always like ladies around the house, pregnant ladies around the house, and. Breathing. And breathing and coming back <laughs> later with, like, you know, to show off what came out of them. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, um... You know any Lamas or did you pick up anything? I, I... I'm I, getting ready to go in. I could use some of this. We don't do this anymore. Like, uh, my wife does... We didn't take Lamas or anything. I... I No, I don't know anything. I just remember there was, like, weird dolls around where you could, like, you know, pull a baby out of a fake vagina. <laughs> Stuff like that. It's still there. Like, a lot of it's still in the house where I grew up. Okay. Um... Uh, but yeah, and then she also became a nurse investigator for New York State. What does that mean? I mean, uh, she she investigated doctors for malpractice on behalf of the state. All right. She was, I mean, she'd done this since she was like you know, eighteen or something like that. Was a was a a nurse in, in mostly like uh, emergency rooms, like trauma nurse, you know, and and sort of had seen everything. And this was her whole life. She was really bright, and um, so she uh, knew her stuff enough to where she would like 
go in and sort of ask the right questions and investigate these doctors. And there's a lot of really shitty doctors out there, and so there's a lot of cases. Okay, so this is, I've talked about this on this show before when it comes to the medical profession, but it's one of these professions that's sort of uh, like an automatic conference of goodness and legitimacy happens when you get that degree and you get that MD, but not all doctors are created equal. The profession is, uh, I don't know, uh, I have like, I guess I have some antipathy towards that uh, set of circumstances, like because I've been through chronic pain, you know, with my back and I've gone in and like seen doctors and like, right. It's clear that these guys are just cashing checks. Like they don't know how to fix it, but they're going to tell you that they do. And or they're going to, they're going to say, let's cut you open. Yeah. Or, or something uh, like that. Yeah, Take this pill. Yep. Right. Let's right. do this. Yeah. Let's just try, they're just like, yeah, whatever we got to, let's turn it over. It's like turning tables. Well, I go and I'm a pale, you know, uh, white guy. So I go into the dermatologist. I try to be like, I want to do the right thing and like take care of myself. So I'll go in and get a checkup to make sure I don't have any like, you know, skin cancer or anything. Right. But then it's like, once they know you're coming in, I feel like they're always cutting stuff off and it's like, did that really need to come off? Or are right. they just like making their money and they, they got big, they got big student loans to pay off. Come, yeah. Come back in six months. You know, I don't know. No, it is. It, it does seem like big, big business. And I've, I've definitely had like really good experiences and, and, and I think pretty, pretty terrible ones. Yeah. Um, so your mom was investigating people for malpractice and yeah. Yeah, in fact, one of them, I, I sort of helped her out. She, I don't, I, I'm, I shouldn't say this, but because I don't think it was legal, but <laughs> she, she's dead, so it's okay. Um, there was, a, a, I guess, really early on, probably it's probably the '90s or the early 2000s, um, like the one of the first guys doing like penal enlargements or something like that. Uh huh. And she was like, "Why don't you call uh, and pretend to be an interested client?" And well, how old like were you? Mangling. How were you? Eight I years was old. In college. <laughs> this is last year. Uh, no, and she. So, so I called, and it was like this really weird scenario. So, where you call, and then they go, "Okay, we're going to call you back," because they wanted to check your their like your phone number and that you were like a real like where you were calling from. Okay. Um, and it was this whole weird back and forth thing that had to happen where I had to try to like prove my 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 sincere interest in, in this, and that Why? it wasn't because I think they already knew that they were under investigation. Oh, okay. Uh, and they were, you know, it's like the person who killed Kanye West's mom or something. It was like some fucking quack uh, who, who didn't know what the hell they were doing. And then, you know, and just was like mangling dudes' dicks oh my God. <laughs> on, a, on a regular basis. Yeah. And so my mom was like, yeah, we will. This is my latest case. Maybe you can help me figure something out. Did she take him down? I have no idea. No idea. Yeah. They Maybe he's still out that. there. He's good still out there. <laughs> making, yep. making mangling penises. Yep. Um, okay, so any siblings? Yeah. Okay. We got an older sister and a younger brother. So right in the middle. Right in the middle. I'm a middle child. You're a middle child. Yeah. They you say it's got something to do with it. I don't know. They say middle children. I've I've always heard like negative things about being the middle child. Like you're star for attention. You're the overlooked one. Yeah. You're not the oldest. So you're not like the shining right. star. Right. Why I act out? Is this is that right? I don't know. I don't know either. Okay. I've ne I never felt overlooked. Maybe which is maybe a credit to my parents. I never felt overlooked, but. In hindsight, I probably was overlooked. You were. I don't know, <laughs> but look. But don't you think like the third kid or something is always the best one or the baby? I think my little sister, when I assess us today, has a certain. She had there was a, a loose uh, a looser approach by my parents when she was younger. Like she got to yeah. she got to live with my sister when she was in high school. My parents moved, and she wanted to finish high school where she had been. They just let her live with my sister for the last year and a half. They would have never let me do that. Let this be a lesson to you as a father. Yeah. 
just leave them alone. Just leave them alone. Just don't even talk to them. <laughs> don't give them all of your anxieties. Right. Right. Just be like, I don't know. Hope don't, you live. Don't transfer. <laughs> no, but you know, I'm, I'm serious. Like you, uh, I say this to myself repeatedly, like what I do way more important than what I say, like lecturing, talking, teaching that impulse as a parent is strong, but it's more important to just live it. Just be like a living example of what you hope your kids will turn out to be. Oh no. What? <laughs> I can never have children. <laughs> it'll be. It, it's challenging. It'll be fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I yeah. mean, really, and you fuck up a lot. Like it's in, in, inevitable that you yeah. will, I think, and and you just have to try to, um, you know, have more hits than misses. I honestly think. I mean, like, and maybe this is why I. I, I guess what I, what I realize about myself is that I I've had tremendous anxiety for a long time. Uh, like debilitating, never, like diagnosable or clinical anxiety. <laughs> I don't know if it's – yeah, I mean, I've been – well, people ask what I'm working on now, and I'm always like, my mental health, right? <laughs> like, I have some money to go to the therapist. Um, and really, what I've sort of figured out in the last year and a half going for two hours every week was, was – oh, my God, everything I've ever done is because I was, like, tremendously anxious. The uh -huh. reason I drank, you know, like a maniac. You was, sober now? No. You still drink? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm still anxious, man. <laughs> no, but I, I've cut back. Yeah. Um why I, why I would like r get up and run, you know, before school or would I like take eight o'clock classes in college and before that wake up at five and run seven miles, you know? Wow! And come back and smoke cigarettes. Uh huh. Why I jerked off like a fucking maniac? Okay. You know why why you do any of these things? Is I was like, oh, I guess I just had really tremendous anxiety. All right. So here, let me okay, because then I I'm I'm anxious too because I have to like exercise to be sane. Uh -huh. I don't know. Are you one of those people? Yeah. Yeah. Of okay. Course. That's not that bad. No, that's not bad. I mean, you know, like I guess like a, the anxiety would be great if I wasn't as anxious and I didn't maybe need it. Because I do feel on a certain, like especially certain days, I'll be like, if I don't do something physical, right, I'm just going to not be a good person today. Yeah. I'm going to have a hard time. Well, I do it. I go, if I don't do something physical, I'm going to be a worse person than the not good person that I'm going to be anyway. <laughs> right. I'm going to uh, take it to the next level. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. But... Uh, as a way of dealing with moods, as a way of, of dealing with anxiety, there are worse things you could do. Sure. Like I had this argument the other night with somebody. I was talking about vanity. Yeah. Which is always kind of like, uh, you know, when you, when you divide, uh, you know, traits, human traits uh, into the good column and the bad column, vanity usually winds up in the bad column. Right. I mean, a little vanity is good. A little bit. I mean, you don't want to overdo it. Look, I'm ready to get HGH. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> right? I'm getting older, man. I'm 39, and I'm like, you got a muscle tone. It's going on my face. It's going away. It's yep. starting to fall. Yep. I yep. don't know. Maybe you, could, maybe you could fill in some of these weird receding spots in my head. You want to care. You don't want to, you don't want to go overboard and obsess. But right. But like working hard to look a little better, doing stuff, that's okay. Rather than just being like, fuck it, I'm just going to let it go. Like, yeah. Right? No. I don't have any ease. There's no ease coming from me. Nothing. No. You no, do. Where, where are you spiritually? What do you mean? I don't like, know. You doing, spiritually? You got a God thing? I, yes, I'm anti. <laughs> You're anti. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I'm, uh, it's, uh, you know, my relationship with that. I was raised Catholic. Me too. And, uh, you know, very early on was like, what is this crap? By, the, know, by the way. You, why is everyone scaring me and, like, chanting? No, I've had, uh, I've had listeners uh, of this podcast point out that lots of uh, recovering Catholics especially come on this show. Yeah. And I just want to point out, I did not know that you were uh, raised Catholic before I had you on. Okay. This is just another incidence of a writer right. on this show yes. who happens to have been raised Catholic. Yep. 
And uh, what is it about Catholicism? You trauma. Think? Trauma. <laughs> I don't know. God in Guilt the sky. giving me the anxiety of like everything I was going to do, everything I would do was bad. I was already a sinner. You know, whatever were your parent, Were your parents real deep into it? My dad was like, I'm Protestant, which means like protest. I don't go to fucking church. Right? Like, so he just well, I wanted nothing to do with any of it. Yeah. My mom was like the one who was like trying to get us to go. I made confirmation and she would be like, you know, well, man, if you... If you make your communion, then you're going to get a party, and everyone's going to give you money. And I would be like, okay, you know. And then she would dress us up like Miami Vice characters, like white suit with a right. teal shirt, and we'd have the party. And you'd do the thing. We'd do the thing. you go to Sunday school? Yeah, for a second. But often I would ditch with a friend of mine named Bobby Ruth, and we'd go, like, you know, steal stuff from the deli or something. Okay. But did you get – how did the anxiety or the uh... – like the church must have gotten into you and affected. Oh, I don't. I don't know if the church did really. I. I mean, me and my sister always had a very healthy kind of like, like we're funny about everything, right? So, you know, and having a, a big sister there, and this is what I was gonna. I was gonna loop back the whole anxiety thing to parenting, meaning like, you know, the older one always says that they're the one who's have like the overbearing parents, and then, um, and then by the time the third or fourth kid comes around, the parents are like, I'm tired, whatever, yeah. and yeah. so, uh. But um, the 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 thing I was just, my sister would be like bringing gay porno playing cards into the church, and we'd like put them in people's hymns books around, we'd scatter them around, and then look at those people, you know, things like that. It was like you know one dude fucking another dude at the house, and then you just like put that in somewhere, and just watch what happens. I like your sister. Yeah, she's great. Okay, she's awesome. Where's she right now? She's in New Orleans. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. She's her work is amazing. There's actually a documentary film called The House That Herman Built about her. What she is works she? with the. Um, the Angola Three, in uh, in um, you know in Angola prison in Louisiana, uh, trying to get them out of these guys have been solitary confinement for over forty years, um, and she was working with a guy named Herman Wallace, who um, she an attorney? No, she's an artist. Okay, uh, went to Stanford. Um, was was tasked with a homework assignment, which was uh, ask your favorite professor what their idea of a dream house is and then design it. And she was like, I have a better idea. It's a guy who's been locked in a six by nine foot cell for over 30 years. I'm going to ask him. And the, and the result, the resulting like letters that went back and forth were amazing. It's like the guy's last, uh, his name was Herman Wallace. The guy's last idea about homes was like from the seventies. So it was like, there was like mirrors on the ceiling. Shag and, like, carpeting. Yeah. He had like, a, he wanted a bearskin rug, but he didn't want to hurt a bear. So he wanted a fake bearskin rug, <laughs> black Panther in the bottom of a swimming pool. Bunker. I mean, it was just sort of this amazing, amazing project that snowballed and, um, you know, uh, it, it led to him getting out of prison uh, with the help of other people. Wrongly course. convicted. Uh, convicted of armed robbery. Um, and then while in prison was a troublemaker with these other two guys. Troublemaker in terms of protesting on behalf of other, for prisoners' rights. Um, and so when a prison guard was murdered, uh, the warden said... Basically, my understanding of it is that I want these three guys to go down. Um, you know, the, and so even the the widower uh, of the of the prison guard who was murdered, uh, it was a woman. Yes. Okay. Uh, said, "Why do you not call that a widower?" No, no, no. I just I, I was call that a widow. No, widow is a woman. Okay, the widower widow. is the man. Okay, widower is the man. Yeah. Uh, just got my gender screwed up. So the widow said. Uh, she she doesn't even believe that these guys have committed the crime. One of the witnesses was blind, and another one was released from prison within a couple of years and said the warden put me up to it. The the testimony, you know, their convictions had all been overturned multiple times. Right. 
Um, and they just sort of locked him away. And this one guy, Herman Wallace, ended up getting diagnosed with terminal liver cancer. Uh, and they threw this Hail Mary sort of legal pass, and he got out. He died a free man and died within 48 hours of being free for the first time in like 40-something years. Solitary confinement seems deeply inhumane. Oh, it is. It's cruel and unusual punishment. It's, yeah. It's like, what, aren't we better than that? Like, I know there should be punishment. Somebody does something horrible, you lock them up. But when it comes to the death penalty and it comes to solitary, it seems like we lower ourselves. That's yeah. how I feel about it. No, that's exactly how you I become, feel about it. You so. become a monster. It's like, okay, let's. you did something horrible. I'm going to do something horrible back. I don't like yeah, that monster. Yeah, it's eye for an eye stuff. It's like, okay. It's not right. Yeah, it's not right. You, I mean, you're looking at this with everything that's going on with the, you know, the torture, uh, you know, um, with the Gulf Wars and everything. It's, it's, it's horrendous. It's, it's fucked up. Yeah, it's really fucked up. Uh, well, that's cool. Your sister does good work. You, you come from a family of people who do good work. Thanks, man. Yeah. She does. I'm super proud of her work. She also, yeah. you know, busts my balls a lot, too. So She does? Oh, yeah. Why? You've written a great book. You should be making her proud. She should be... Uh, I think she's very proud of me, but she totally... We, just, we, we sort of grew up with an antagonistic household. It's just like crazy fights all the time, fist fights. She bullied me. She was tough, man. She played football with guys okay. on Long Island. There's articles about that. Like on a team? On the yes, on a team. It what did she play? Starting safety as a girl is the headline. No shit. Yeah. Okay. She's, she's tough. What's her name? Jackie Summel. All right. Yeah. Is and my brother. Yeah. And so me and my sister are very similar, right? Like she's sort of like we're both little shit starters. We're both sort of shortish and brownish. And then there's my brother, the, the third kid, who's like tall and kind of Asian looking. Okay. And he <laughs> is a PhD in economics. Holy shit. Yeah. Where did he go to school? Married. He's got kids. He's got two kids. Uh-huh. And he's like like happy. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> yeah, he normalized. <laughs> yeah, something happened to him. I think it was because, you know, last but, kid, last kid. It's, it, but it's that. But it's also like what are you interested in? Where did you go to school? Like so many things determine that. It's a little bit of uh, fate, luck. Who knows? I don't know. All I know is there's no ease over here. No ease. No peace. Okay, when did, so high school, uh, what does high school Matt Summel look like? He looks like a little lesbian. <laughs> I really, I was like manorexic. I didn't eat a lot. I was like, why? I don't, I don't know. You're a wrestler. Were you trying to make weight? No. Okay. I was a soccer player. All right. Baseball player. That's good. Uh, I was just super skinny, and I was like 120 something pounds. But I had this idea of myself as like this tough guy. But you were. Why weren't you eating? I don't. I, don't, I have no idea. It was a control thing. I have no clue. I just was really uptight, really, really, really wound up, and I was like. But it wasn't like I got to get skinny. I want to look skinny. I don't want to yeah, be. Part fat. of it was. Part of it was like I, you know, I, I want to. It was my idea, maybe of like what in shape looked like. I guess I had body issues or something weird. Yeah. Um. So I counted calories, and then I would wake up and go like like before high school and like run four miles and then come back and check. You know, like I was just always on it. Um, on a, to an unhealthy level, you know, really unhealthy. And, uh, and then I, but I was also like a hothead, right? So I was like 120 pounds, 125 pounds, 130 pounds, whatever I was. And, but I just wouldn't take any, you know, I I got suspended for fighting. I, you know, there was this other, you got in a lot of fights. Yeah, I did. Um, Did you win a lot of them? No, (laughs) no, no, none of that. It's just not what being able to sort of walk away, I guess. Because I couldn't live with myself if I did. It was like, I guess I had this idea that you know, you just don't take any shit, and if you do, I would feel so guilty or something. I would, I would hate myself more if I didn't t- get into the fight. You ever get your ass kicked? Yeah. 
How does that feel? I never have been Fine. like. It's okay. It's okay. Because I haven't. Maybe just because I've always gotten lucky, and I, you know, I, um, whatever fights get broken up or whatever, I. They yeah. usually don't last that long. They don't last that long. You know, I've never been really. Um, I've always I've always walked away from everything. You know, the worst was uh, I was at, when I was I was just out in Wilmington. There's a bar there called Red Dogs. So I got into this bar fight in um, college, and I got uh, I got hit in the head with a mag light by the bouncer. No shit. What's a mag? The mag light's like the clip on. Yeah, it's like the, the it's like the giant flashlight that the, the police use to beat oh, people yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're if you're looking to beat somebody, uh, suggest a mag light. Yeah, they're wonderful. It's like four D batteries in it or something. Uh huh. Yeah, but I just had like a giant knot on my head for a while. You know. That's it. Yeah. Nothing like you were never knocked out cold. I <laughs> this is good actually. I was knocked out cold once. I was open hand slapped. Knocked out by a wrestler named Brian Kaminsky from high school. He was, he was like my little. He was an antagonist. He was like my enemy, and uh, he was a year younger than me too. And he open hand slapped me, and I just like went. Wah. What a side of the head? Yeah. Wow. He yeah. must have been a big guy. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. He was about my size. <laughs> and well, uh, he must have hit you perfect. I or, or I don't know. I got a glass jaw or something. That's it. You know, I just was like, Wah. and I kind of slid to the ground, and buddy might caught me. And then he propped me back up, and then I threw one punch, and then again, and then they just no one tried to separate it. Then and then he did some wrestling stuff on me. Okay. And I think eventually I just tapped out. Like, okay, <laughs> can you do that in a fight? <laughs> just tap the ground three times. <laughs> oh, that was just like someone help. Someone you know, help. help me. Yeah. <laughs> so did you get? Uh, did you have decent grades? Yeah, always. I was always um, uh, book smart. Every it sounds like all the kids in your family were book smart. Yeah, we all did pretty well in school. You have that. Have Genetic. that street smarts or whatever I don't know about. That's different. Yeah. Of the three children, are you uh, the loosest cannon? Yes. Uh, what kind of drink? Like drinking and drugs in high school? Yes. How, how crazy with the drugs? Weed mostly. Weed mostly. Yeah. Um, yeah, we don't. I think maybe some shrooms. Okay. Something like that. And then where'd you go to college? Did UN, you go to UNC Wilmington? Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah. So you go down to UNC Wilmington. Yeah. Why there? I grew up surfing. I grew up on the. We grew up on a river in Oakdale, and you could take. We had boats. My dad, you know, was a sailor. Um, taught me to sail. Uh, we'd sail around Long Island every summer, but we also would like go over to Fire Island on a regular basis. It's like my, you know, it's my happiest memories as a kid. We're being on the water, and um, and so we'd go to Fire Island. We all had like a, me and a couple friends had boats, and so every summer we'd spend. We'd just pull together whatever money we had. What kind of boat did your family have? We had a 31-foot almond sloop uh, just because it's like up the river. You can't have a, a deep – you can't have something that draws too much water, so you can't have a deep keel. Okay. And we'd also have like center consoles and, and little power boats to just you know power around, you know, uh, play around the water, the river with or whatever, or go over. You just shoot across the Great South Bay, and you can just go to like Sailor's Haven is where I grew up uh, surfing. So you like throw an anchor uh, on the bay side, grab your surfboards, and then go surf for a few hours. In, on the ocean and then walk back over and for lunch we'd go foot clamming like you just feel around the bay for clams pull them up uh throw them on a barbecue they open up and you eat them damn that, that sounds was, good it was awesome uh and now you can't do a lot of that stuff because the water got really polluted and you know it's just all fucked up over there now but it was so i picked i picked wilmington because i was like oh it's not too far and there's good surf down there um and it had the right guy to girl ratio or something like that. It was like a lot more girls, I think. 
and they took me because you know I didn't do well too well on the SATs. I don't think. Are you a good surfer? Still? No. You get out on the water still? Um, I try to. Uh, I I um, so I surfed all through. I ended up in San Diego also because was, you know this is how I ended up in, in graduate school. Was I was I washed up in San Diego after college. I had a sort of marketing gig where I drove around the country for a couple of years, being an idiot, um, setting up racing simulators and bars. And then when that ended, I was like, San Diego. Because I had some buddies who went from, from North Carolina to San Diego, and I crashed on the couch and surfed with them. And we'd go down to Mexico and surf and did, you know, Indonesia and, like, Panama and Costa Rica trips and things like that. Uh, and then I, I didn't know what to do with myself, so I applied to grad schools. And I got rejected from every single one of them. Um, across the board, the first year writing, writing graduate school. Yeah. So you like when? When did you start on that track? Like when did you know you wanted to write fiction? Um, I'm still not sure, but there was, there was a. Um, I was an environmental science major at UNC Wilmington, and then I took an elective class with Rebecca Lee. Uh, her book, uh, Bobcat and Other Stories, was just nominated for the Story Prize. Uh huh. Um, and she was like 27. She was. She is beautiful. She's a really attractive lady. Super funny, really warm, really turned me on to some like amazing things. So I just developed this huge crush on her and I would just I just kept taking her classes. Like a total <laughs> stalker. Idiot stalker. <laughs> you know, trying to impress her. Never did. Uh and um but I ended up a double major. So environmental science and And English with emphasis in creative writing. Okay. And so when I didn't know what to do with myself, washed up in San Diego, I just started applying to graduate programs in writing. And I was rejected from every single one. Which ones did you apply to? Mostly based on ones where there was good surf. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) Hawaii, Uh, San Diego. SDSU is where I wanted to go. And David Matlin, I guess, who runs that program, uh, somehow I, I pissed him off. Like, I just think I was that annoying person who did that thing you're not supposed to do. Like, after I got rejected, I was like... Well, why, man? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> right. And I think he eventually wrote, like, your work is neither funny nor transgressive, but extraordinarily offensive. That's what he said? Yeah. You you still have that? I I don't know. Okay. It's not, like, framed on your wall or anything? No, it's not framed on my wall or anything like that. But, uh, so I got rejected from everywhere, and then I, I, the next, I just bummed around for another year doing I don't know what, and then I, I uh, applied to some more programs, and th- I just was like, oh, well, Irvine's in Southern California. So I applied there, and that's the only one I got into. It's a good one. It's a great one. Yeah. It's an awesome experience. I feel like it's a top five uh, like graduate writing program. Yeah, I mean, really, um, it, was, it was a tremendous experience. I just can't believe it. Okay, and you could surf. Well, and I got – so I got – I lucked my way into that one because what happened was uh, – well, the, I'm not sure that this is exactly true, but it's something like this. I was waitlisted. I've always been like the waitlist guy. I'm always like <laughs> <laughs> perennial, perennial – how do you say that word? Uh, runner up but the um, so I guess they accept six people a year and I was number seven uh-huh. and they expect everyone's going to say yes because it's basically a gift it's a full ride you're like okay yeah sure who would say no right but I guess it's people who say no who are like you know they have options to go to like five places that are all free so um, apparently Jeffrey Wolf had called to give this girl the good news. It's like they get six new puppies every year. They're always like, I get to call somebody and give them good news. How often does that happen? Yeah. Right? And he called and he, he you know, he, there was some like noise in the background and he was like, well, this is Jeffrey Wolf calling from UC Irvine. And the, and the girl, I don't know who it was, was like, Jeffrey who? And he was like, Wolf. And, and she, from where? Irvine. And um, she was like, Irvine? What? Where's? And he, Jeffrey was like, 
are you doing the dishes right now? <laughs> and she said, uh, yeah. And he went, never mind. And he hung up the phone and offered me offered me her spot. No shit. He got he just got that annoyed with her. I guess this had gone on for uh, you know too long for him, and he was like, "Fuck it." Like she just yeah, you know, she can't even turn the sink off to get the good news. To get the and good he news, just got all bent out of shape about it. And was like, Fuck I, I kind of get that. Yeah, I kind of get it. I mean, like sometimes I'll be on the phone with people, and they're like eating in my ear, or they're doing something. It's like if you we can I can call back. Yeah. Like, we can do this another time if you'd not, you know. I also think, like, I guess she, she probably insulted him a little bit. But like, Jeffrey Who? What? You know? Like, who are you? What do you want with me? I hope she got in somewhere else. Uh, it's Rachel Kushner. No, Is I'm it? just kidding. No, I have no idea. Right. <laughs> She's done fine. Yeah. Um, so you had a good time there. Did you feel, did you feel like you got markedly better? I know I did. Okay. Yeah, the stuff I was submitting. I remember the first story I submitted was called Nail Care Dreams. I just became infatuated with, like, nail care salon names. It was because they're ridiculous. It's like angel tips. <laughs> Sending gave me an African hair in Nail Village. You know, like there's the most ridiculous names. And so I don't even, there was a hamster involved. A hamster named Luigi because I had one. I had big balls. He ate the babies. I don't know. And I, it was like the most ridiculous. Like it was me trying to be funny. Uh-huh. And it wasn't. Okay. Uh, and I even in, like taped it. CD mixtape to the back page and gave it to everybody like, hey, this is what I listened to. Like it was like <laughs> fucking it, but terrible. I, I did something. I did similar shit. Like it's like it's like uh, what is that that impulse or that urge to like be likable or to um, surprise people? Well, I always want to confound expectations. I do do that, but yeah. But yeah, you don't want to look. It's it's writing. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that that was one of the first things that Jeffrey Wolf taught me was look, writing's not stand up. It has to be more serious than that. You can't just make people laugh. You yeah, know, there's got to be narrative here. There's got to be there's got to be a seriousness to your work. Where's the seriousness? Right, right. And then that was sort of driven into me multiple times by Michelle Latiolet, who's an amazing instructor and a great friend, and and Mark Richard too, who really. Um, he came down on somebody. We were sort of like applauding the writing and everything in the class and just saying, well, this is great and this is great. And then finally, you know, Mark Richard said, look, you know, when I go home tonight, I don't even know if I should be repeating this, but he was like, when I go home tonight, you know, I might be sleeping on the couch. My wife's really mad at me right now and I got to make a living and I got three boys, you know, trying to support my family here. And you want me to read this? I mean, sure, it's well written, but I need something that's going to save my fucking life here. You know, like, you have to save my life. If you, I never want to feel like my time is being wasted, right? So, so where is the seriousness to this story, basically? Um, and of course, that writer ran out of the room crying. I think, but but um, I get it. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, so it takes time to read something. Yeah, it takes time. It takes effort. You're asking people. You're asking a lot of people, especially in like busy people in today's world. You know, shut off the TV. Yeah, shut off the radio. Listen to nothing else. Don't don't yeah. be don't be a parent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, read. What I have to say, because it's such an arrogant thing to do, really, but like what I have to say is so important. <laughs> Shut off everything else. Close the world out. Yeah. Yeah. But it, you know, the, there's a payoff too when the writing is good. Of course. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you lost your mother in graduate school? Yes. That, um, that, had, a, that had to have impacted your work. Obviously, it's, it impacts everything. Yeah, it, uh, totally. Um, it hijacked everything. I mean, I dropped out. I was trying to drop out. I was like, All right, fuck it, I'm out. Yeah. Um, and they were like, no, no, no. Just take a leave of absence. Come back and finish whenever you're ready. And I was like, yeah, I mean, they were just so generous with me there. Uh, um, she had, what, she had cancer? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember I was living on a boat in San Pedro. 
at the time. That's what I did in graduate school. I just took student loans and bought a boat. So I'm really, I make really smart decisions <laughs> on a regular basis. And uh, and I got a phone call from my sister. You know, she was crying and sort of found out that my mother had like passed out at the wheel while driving to work as a nurse investigator. Uh huh. And woke up on the side of the road. Ended up, you know. Well, she didn't crash. I think she just maybe she did, but like you know, had like managed to slowly slow down. slump over and yeah, and just sort of ended up passed out on the side of the road and um, ended up in the hospital. And they found it, I think, in her in her shoulder first, but I think it was in. I mean, I, I think they said it was lung cancer. Okay, um, but it, she by the time they found it, it was everywhere. No, she wasn't. Uh. When she was younger, she was. But, okay. Um, in fact, she used to sneak a cigarette while she was pregnant with me. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's why I have no peace. Uh, no. And um, and so we all just moved home. Like everybody just moved, went back to Long Island. And How old was she? Uh, I think 60. Oh. I'm really bad with like dates. I know. And ages. She was young. She was young. She was really young. That yeah. sucks. And she was like, you know, a happy person who who had this sort of like, Traumatic childhood. Oh, that's another thing you could do as a parent. Not that I know, but I did you see that show Happiness with um, Steve Coogan? No. Or Happy-ish? No, no, no. Oh, I haven't seen really it. really good. One of the first episodes, somebody says something like, I think the only way that you can make your kid be happy or grown up to be happy is if you have a miserable childhood. <laughs> you just got to fuck up your kid. <laughs> and then it just gets better from there. Right. My mother had a really shitty childhood, but she was full of like life and sort of love life and was like, I'm going to take belly dancing classes. And she became a pilot and, you know, like all, she did all these things. And meanwhile, you know, and there's my dad who's like, you know, well, dad, what do you want to do? And he's like, I want to fucking die. <laughs> but that guy just, you know, he's indestructible and he goes yeah. on and on and on. Isn't and that the mom, way that it's, it's the way it works? It's the way it works. Somehow. And so, uh, yeah, she, she, and she knew as soon as she got it, like the, the, the diagnosis, she's like, it's over. And she didn't even want to treat it, but they were like, if you don't, it's already in your spine, you're going to be paralyzed, you know. So Ugh. it was, you know, it was awful. Brutal. Yeah, brutal. Um, did you think, was there a point in that process where you're like, I'm not going to write or I don't want to do this anymore? Or did you want to do it more? I don't know if I ever wanted to do it. I'm serious. Like I, it's really painful for me to write. Um, you know, and I'm not necessarily sure why. I think I just, you know, like, all right, okay, so there's several those, those, there are those people in workshop who seem to be able to sit down the night before. I mean, I, I heard Maggie Shipstead's um, uh, segment on your show, and then I, and she, you know, and she's like, oh, in graduate school, and I would just sit down and write the story the night before the workshop, and I'm like, what? Did she say that? I think she said something like that. Okay. Um, I can't even remember. I was here, by the way. Yeah, you were there. <laughs> Uh, uh, she said something like that and she, like, and she admitted like it wasn't the best way to spend your time you know but um, uh, you know I've never been that guy I can't do that ever I just it's so torturous for me I do not have a facility with language and maybe this is why I'm a writer part of the reason why I'm a writer is because I, I was so shy I was so awkward I, I had so much social anxiety I couldn't speak you know what I mean and so it was sort of like well this gives me a chance to say what I want to say and work on it yeah um but I don't have like that ease with language where I just write something and like you write a thirty-page story, twenty-seven of them are perfect, and you know here's the part you got to edit. I'm the guy who writes, you know, the worst piece of shit ever, but I'm so fucking stubborn that I just I don't quit on it for seven years. You know, some of the stories in the book did take me seven years. Wow. Yeah. What are you What are you doing? It's just getting the language right. Everything. Everything. 
Yeah, just how do you know when it's done? Uh, I mean, there's that idea that it's never done, just abandoned. But I think I just get to a place where I go, I don't know, I can't fucking look at it anymore. I hope it's done, and it doesn't hurt when I read it right. anymore. Right. You know, um, I don't flinch when I go, ooh, that's terrible. I just kind of, you know, you just get a sense like, oh. And the ending is somehow satisfying, I suppose. Okay. So, so it took seven years for some of these stories. All lateral specifically, yeah. Um, that one was one of the ones where after graduate school I was working at the marina fuel dock and I had all this time. Um, you know, you'd sit in the shack and watch the trash float by on the tide and there would be a couple boats coming in over eight hours. I think it was eight or ten hour days. And I would write. I would try to write. Um, but I, no, I didn't, I wasn't motivated, you know, at all. I wasn't like, I have something to say. It was just like, well, I have time. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta be working. I'm not inspired. And so that just, that story came from, from labor. Like, okay, what can I make of this? You know, I'm trying to make something out of nothing. What can, and so you just, I just would grind on it and grind on it and grind on it. You know, well, that just sounds perverted, but <laughs> you know, I would just, it was just, it was, you got to put your hours in, you know, in fact, uh, I t I've said this, a few times in some of these interviews, but I gave um, a friend of mine named Marissa Matarazzo. I think you, you work with her, actually, um, at the Nervous Breakdown. Anyway, she's a local L.A. writer. Yeah. I uh, wrote a great book called Drench. But after after we graduated, I gave her a time clock that you actually punch, you know, the time cards in. Uh, so it's like put your hours in. Put your two, three hours in a day, at least, and check out. And then you don't feel guilty. So I try to do that. I'm not very good at it. I was going to say, how do you work? You work every day? No. No. Uh, I try because otherwise I do feel like shit. Um, uh, I'm better in the mornings for sure. I wish there was like a, the Nicholson Baker routine of like waking up at four, three or four and then writing for a couple hours and going back to sleep and getting a second morning in. Yeah. Something like that. I just I'm not that disciplined. So. Uh, I'll just try to get at it sometime in the morning because I feel like my brain shuts down around noon and I become even dumber. Yeah, um, I'm the same way. Yeah, and then, it, but sometimes I'll attack it at a weird hour. You know, I'll be like, I don't know. And what it's are you, six o'clock? Are, are you what are you working on now? Uh, so it's this Esquire piece, um, they tasked, uh, you know, because I have a relationship with Tyler Cabot over there, the editor has been nothing but great to me. You know, after the book came out, he said, what do you want to do now? And I said, well, I'm actually trying to find this movie that my father appeared in, in 1966. It was the only, he was an extra in it. They just needed, it was called Wounded in Action, and they just needed people with artificial limbs to, like, lay in a bed. <laughs> yeah. And my dad was like, yeah, I'll go. <laughs> and he went over to Manila and did nothing but, like, you know, have sex with hookers and, you know, be a, a drunken maniac and... um but this movie has been it was never released but it had been it's been reviewed on IMDb like six times uh or eight times i think someone on tv guide also reviewed it like it it exists somewhere and no one but no one has a copy and we've been looking and looking and looking i have a copy of the script it's signed by cast and crew i actually tracked down the the, the lead actor He's who, still who alive. is um anybody actually, we would know no okay uh well his name's escaping me right now um, but he lives up in like Washington and he has his, so we get his number from IMDB pro and, uh, call him up and he is, um, he has a museum dedicated to his own filmography, a museum. And he, he was like, I said, Hey, you know, I'm calling about wounded in action. And he was like, that's the only movie I don't have a copy of. 
I'll pay you $500 for it. I was like, that's what I was going to offer you. No. So he said, I bet you a copy exists back in Manila where it was shot. Uh, and so I started getting this idea of taking my dad over there. And I told Tyler over at Esquire, and he was like, go. So we went over there, and it was a train wreck. It was a disaster. <laughs> Fucking Pope was there. They shut down the entire country, <laughs> you know. I assaulted my dad within like two hours of arriving. What, you, you hit him? Well, I, I shook him. Okay. Try to give him shaky baby syndrome. You know, we're just both like, you know, being on a flight. He's, I don't know. I, it's, it was, it was, I'm trying to sort of explore all that right now. But the thing is overdue. It got too long. And I'm now considering it maybe it's a book. Um, that happens though a lot of times. These things, yeah. they, they kind of grow. It's, it grew. And I'm not, I'm on like day two of the trip. And, and do you think it's a memoir? I would I I like to call I like to just have the freedom of calling it fiction, um, just in case something works better. You can just embellish yeah, a little bit. Of course. Yeah. 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 Um, how many know, How many words are you at right now? I, I don't know. I what forty uh, something pages. Okay. Yeah. Could be a book. Could be. That's interesting. Yeah. And are you going to get into your past and your dad's past and the war and all like whatever? Was he in the war? He wasn't. He wasn't. Uh. Uh-uh. He was um, right before Vietnam. And then he, you know, after he lost his leg, he was out. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like it, it seems like fertile ground to explore. I haven't explored it yet, but it could happen. It could happen, sure. If you're gonna, because I mean, you're gonna have to go beyond forty pages. Oh, I, I know. I'm saying I'm on forty pages, but I haven't even started the damn trip. It's like this was the arrival. Oh, this was the- you haven't. Like, have you shaken your father in the piece yet? Yes. Okay, so you're just you've shaken him, and then now you got to figure out what happens next. Yes. Okay. Uh huh. And other things happened on that trip, too. So when you work with Esquire and you have a, a piece like this and you're past deadline, are they getting antsy? Are they pretty lenient? Um, look, I already feel like a tremendous disappointment about not having it on time. But it was also – it was the craziest time to take something like this on. I'd never done anything like it before. It was right before the book came out. It was January. Um, I was – you know, it's my first book. I, the trip, the pressure I felt was really sort of manifesting itself in really terrible ways. Like I was, you know, I'd thrown chairs in bars and restaurants. Like I was like sort of a maniac. So it was just like 10 years of work. And this is important. And this could lead to, you know, opening other doors. And I don't know what's going to happen. And it just like, I just really like sort of wrecked my You life. threw chairs in restaurants? Yeah, once. What? Where? New Orleans. Okay, that's a good town to throw a chair in the restaurant. <laughs> it's yeah, but it's like shameful. It was um, it's something I've been actually like you know working on. It's like who wants to behave like this? I'm almost fucking Were forty years old. Yeah, of course. Okay, I'd had a, I'd had a bunch of drinks. I was hanging out with my sister. Um, uh, Where were you? What restaurant? I forget the name, of course. In the French Quarter. Uh, in I think it's in the Bywater actually. All right. Yeah. Um, it could have been Marini, but uh, um. And I still, you know, I haven't made amends to this person yet. What happened was somebody said something about, like, how when, you know, when art meets commerce, you know, you have to kind of sell out. And they were basically implying that I was a sellout, or at least that's how I heard it in my drunken mind. Um, and I sat there, and it just sort of, like, the pressure built in my chest. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to figure all this out. But at, at some point, I just snapped. And I ended up, like, flipping a table and throwing a chair and being like, I'm not a fucking sellout. You know, I've even fought my my editors over all these things and the cover, and you know, and I've been, you know, like this is important to me. This is emotionally expensive to me. This is really fucking hard for me to do. Don't call me a fucking sellout. And I think everyone was like, 
she didn't. You know? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, but I'm leaving. And I just stormed out of the... Like, the dude just held the door open, like, have a nice night. And I just walked out. And you're writing from a lot of pain. Well, yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, what I mean. And then somebody gets in there and touches that part of you. It ha- could happen to anybody, but especially somebody... Like, you know, you're also a funny person, and you're a funny writer. I mean, I... Right. Thank you. Yeah. But I mean, you're you're, you're trying to be. Yeah. And you are. I mean, just your natural bearing is that way. And people who are like that, uh, it comes from some pain. Right. It's not somebody who's just like full of jokes. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, comedians all over. Yeah. And and, and even if you're not, uh, even if you don't have a comedic bearing or like, you know, sensibility or whatever, everybody has something, some part of themselves, um, some pain. Yeah. That if it's touched or triggered, can lead to bad behavior. And um, I think it's, I find it, uh, when I heard you just tell that, like I found it sort of touching that you care that much. I care too. Yeah. It's you know too what I'm much. saying? I mean, I think even people are like, calm down. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, you know, my, my agent, my, uh, you know, my pe- people I work with are like, you know, I, I remember when I, and I'm just sort of opening my mouth here, and who knows when my publicist's gonna be like, "You idiot!" But you know, I, when, when I first sat down with, with um, in the Holt offices to do that, like author, um, what do they do? Where they put you on video uh-huh. and they start asking you questions? Yeah, meet the author, or whatever. Yeah, whatever. And they were asking, you know, it's like everyone's got to do it. And I'm like, I really don't want to do it. I'm not feeling social right now. Well, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Uh, I don't. I don't feel like I want to answer these questions right now. Um, and we sat down, and they started asking me very personal questions. Like, so how autobiographical is this? I mean, that, I don't think they asked me that, but they were like, so tell me about your brother and sister. Like, and how are they? How do they feel about this book? And I almost started crying, like on camera. And then my, my initial <laughs> impulse, being a shithead, you know, hothead from fucking Long Island, was like, when I start crying, I get, there's a lot of self-aggression, too. I get mad at myself. So then I was like, I'm going to throw a fucking chair. <laughs> I could just assault furniture now because I don't want to assault people. So I'm like, fuck you, furniture. Like, yeah. fuck. Oh, it hurts. Like, it fucking hurts. So I, I started getting riled up and was like, I got to, you know. And, and so my editor had to come down. Sarah Bowen has been tremendous. Uh, came down and sort of talked me off the ledge. And then they got me like a media coach. <laughs> and we're like, you need to learn how to talk about You using this. any of that right now? No. No. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Oh yeah, well you misdirect or something. I don't even know. I don't. I, I don't have a good memory. Answer the question you want to answer, rather than the question that was asked. Yeah, I don't yeah. do that. I okay. kind of just. I, I don't have that filter. I have no media coaching at all. Yeah, like none. Clearly. None. <laughs> yeah, I'm an idiot. It's fine, but um, you know, so so, and I've gotten better at all that stuff. I think you're in therapy. Yeah. When did that start? Right after the book sold, because all of a sudden I wasn't poor. Okay, and you could do it. Yeah, I mean, before that, I was working at a college in Santa Monica near you, but a terrible, like one of those for-profit pieces of shit. Uh, but I didn't know. I just was like, health insurance? I got to get my teeth fixed, you yeah, know? Yeah, So I was happy to be there, but it was five classes, 30 people in the class. That's how you got full-time. It paid like 58000 bucks, And I was like, I can pay my rent and I can go to the doctor. Yeah. Um, and so I did that for a couple of years. That's a lot of work. The same week I got published in the Paris Review, uh-huh. they called me into the office. And I was like, thought they were going to be like, hey, we're proud of you. Great job. And they were like, we got to let you go. And I said, why? And they said, nothing. We actually love you. We want to hire you back part time. Like the students were just like signing petitions to keep me. And um, I was like, you want to hire me back part time? They were like, yeah, like, you know, we have to legally, we have to let you go for this. 
for at least a, a semester or a quarter or whatever system they were on. I forget. But then we'll hire you back right after that on a part-time basis. Like no you benefits. Can, you can have four classes. So four classes instead of five. No benefits. Half uh, the money. Right. And I was like, fuck you. This is the best writing like fellowship I could, I'm ever going to get because I don't get those either. <laughs> like I feel like I always, <laughs> my writing somehow always pisses somebody off. Right. <laughs> so if, there, if there's any decision by committee, I'm fucked. Right. But uh, um, so I was like, well, I'll just take the unemployment uh, and the severance check and you know, sign that non-disclosure agreement that I probably just broke. And I'll just take it, and I'll finish the damn book. Uh, and that's what I did. And then you sold it. Well, yeah. And, but, and like, things that start after the Paris Review happens, which, you know, was all without an agent. Like, other, like I got an email from Gordon Lish. Then I signed with Nicole Raji. Like, things just started to... Uh, the Paris Review had that kind of power for you. Yeah. Well, well I think doors. people read that, and then, they, and, and then all of a sudden agents and stuff start... Well, I mean, yeah, because they figure, you know, if a writer gets their stuff into the Paris Review, they've cleared hurdles. Right. And that's the thing. I mean, people are so busy. You need these filters. Uh-huh. You need these places. Like, as an agent, I can imagine it's like, yeah, you got to scout these, uh, you know, literary reviews just to find, you know, prospective talent. But you don't want to just be getting, uh, you know, stories blindly submitted. You have no idea. No one's vetted it. Right. At least you know that, like, some other people have looked at this. <laughs> Yeah, which whose are, opinion you trust is is absolute, which is also like somewhat frustrating because a lot of some of these some of these literary journals or like some of the places where I've actually published have all rejected these story, the same stories. They probably didn't even read them, or they had like some intern read them. Yeah, right. And so they've gone on to then accept those stories years later. Do you let them know that? In some cases, <laughs> right. It depends on my relationship with that person, yeah. but like. You know, going like, oh, yeah, I made a lot of changes. Wink, wink. Like, I didn't make any fucking changes. It's the same story. thing, but now that I have cleared these, you know, sort of hurdles or, or, you know. Well, it's this whole thing with the letters of recommendation. I fuck, I I hate that. I hate bothering people to get letters of recommendation. For, like, graduate programs or whatever? Or Or, now that it's not a graduate program, sometimes I was applying for, like, Provincetown. I was a runner-up for Provincetown. (laughs) Waitlisted. Yeah, waitlisted. (laughs) And, um... Buddy of mine, Sam Leader, up and comer, he's going to be amazing. He, he's he's one of these guys. He's just he's the guy who writes thirty pages, and it's all it's great. Um, I submitted stories that I had published in, in in electric literature already to Provincetown, and he stayed up the night before and wrote something and sent it in. And he got, got in Provincetown, and I was waitlisted, <laughs> and I was like, motherfucker. <laughs> but uh, uh, where's I going with this? He, um, yeah, like you have to. So like some of those, not Provincetown, but it's some of the other uh, residencies, you need, you need the, letters, right? And um, I sometimes feel I had this theory about graduate school and probably the same thing could apply to uh, residencies or whatever is that like they probably read the letters of recommendation with almost as much interest as they do the actual submissions submissions because it's like, well, who's recommending this person? Right. Like who who's already said anybody we recognize. You Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. maybe your maybe your buddy had like, you know somebody uh, of note write a letter of recommendation that, exactly. that registered that could have been the case could, that could absolutely be the case well I think more and more you've seen publishing too and, and I did my best to try uh, to do something like this but to get um, blurbs almost ahead of time before you go out with a book yeah because um, if you know I recommend people, I recommend that to people yeah. and they go away you know but it's like no because uh, you know if your agent takes a book out and you have five blurbs from you know n- name writers, mm-hmm. people that people in the literary world are going to recognize. That can only help. Yeah, so you've done some helps. of their work for them. It seems like it's vetted. 
you know, it's testimonials. Right. It's just like a movie ad that you see in the newspaper. Uh-huh. You know, four stars, sensational. Like, there's a reason why that shit is on every advertisement. It works. Right. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. People see that and they go, oh, you know, maybe yeah. maybe it is. Or exactly, and they get interested, and then they'll they'll sort of read it a little bit more quickly, a little bit more eagerly. Um, I mean, with my, I I don't know if that was necessarily if that was necessary with my agent, like Nicole. Just I think people just already are like. Huh, Nicole? Yeah. What are you going out with, Nicole? Right. Um, which I'm, I'm so lucky to have behind me. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I've just been. I mean, like you have to be. Yeah, you have to work hard, but I, I, you just you have to get lucky. You know, I'm That's so right. I've been so lucky, like across the board. I mean, that electric literature thing was so fucking lucky. Um, and I've had these people. I don't feel lucky in my normal life. You know what I mean? But yeah. I feel lucky in the literary. It world. Wor- it moves around. I mean, it's like a. Yeah, there's some people who are just extraordinarily unlucky right. in life. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to wrap my head around. Yeah. I especially think of, like, children in the third world. Like, people are born into horrible circumstances. Oh, of course. Um, but it comes, you know, when it comes to, like, whatever context I'm operating in, in America, uh, in publishing, in the creative arts, like, you work hard, you keep doing the work, and you do the best you can. You're good to people. Hopefully, eventually... You get a break. Yeah, hopefully. And it doesn't always happen. And it doesn't always happen. And I have I have friends who I think are more talented, better writers, have written better books, who are like, I can't get an agent. Or I had an agent that went out with it. No one wants it because it's not commercial enough, you know, or whatever. And I just, it's so maddening. It's like, oh, my God. Takes one. Yep, takes one. Takes, takes one. Uh, somebody has to say yes, you know, so you have to keep trying, but. Some some of these people walk away because they had babies, and so now they're like doing something else, you know. And it's so. What about you? What's the what do you you look at the future? Do you make plans? No, oh, no. I'm a man in the world without a plan. I don't know. I I'm very I'm very short sighted that way. Um, One day at a time. Yeah, it's weird. I have this idea that when you're in pain or of some kind, your time horizon shrinks, and like you start thinking minutes a minute, or like how do I find relief for this thing, uh, and you stop thinking long term. And not that I'm in like sort of tremendous pain. But but just that I've, you know, like I'm looking at my I'm looking at I was just looking at houses in Wilmington, North Carolina, buy because I can't afford anything in L.A. But I'm also looking at tugboats because I'm like boats make me happy. <laughs> Maybe I'll buy a tugboat because I'm just, I don't I don't plan good, man. Yeah, yeah. Writers tend to when it comes to practical matters, not always, but a lot of the time, uh, be sh- they tend to make shitty decisions. Yeah, or at least like eccentric decisions. If we want to put a softer adjective on it. We don't have to put a softer. <laughs> I mean, I that's. I mean, I also have this idea about writing too. That bad, bad, bad choices make for good stories. Right? Buy that tugboat, man. Buy the tug. I want. I mean, as a, as a uh, you know interested observer. Yeah. I want to hear about your life on the tugboat. It's, I don't want you to live in suburbia in Wilmington and like you go surfing. I want you to be on a tugboat. Maybe I could do both. It's Maybe like, there's there's a there's a 37 foot steel Benton tug in Florida Keys. Okay. Six grand. Damn. It's rusting out. Okay, it's a, you know it's I a fixer upper. The guy who lived on it was an old air traffic controller, and he went down there and he sort of put all this money into it. And then he was like, and then I caught Keys disease. I would just wake up and drink margaritas and shit. And I, <laughs> I like four years later, I was like, I have to get out of here. And he just like abandoned his tugboat, and so it's still sitting down there. And I'm kind of like, huh, it's a nice just sitting boat. there. Yeah. You ever worry you could get Keys disease? Yeah. 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 Uh huh. Of course. I've definitely dialed back, though. I really have. Yeah. I had to. Like, meaning what? Like, how much are you drinking? How much am I drinking? Well, when I just went out this weekend, I was drinking too much. But I think um, 
actually have this new game with my girlfriend where I'll be like, because there's this new movement in, in like, you don't have to completely abstain, right? Yeah. And I think people are just always looking for excuses to continue drinking. And I don't want to be the guy who's like, no, I can't have one or my life will fall apart. Right. Um, I like having drinks with people, you know, and I think there's there can be a healthy way to do it. Uh, but there's this new thing where you can be like, you just have to sort of, like, retrain yourself, kind of, and go out and you go, all right, I'm going to have two tonight. Treat it like a dessert or something, right? And you're like, I'm going to spend two hours here and I'm going to have three drinks. And you sort of like can go out. And so I do this game with my girlfriend. We'll be like, we have to go to practice. And we'll meet me at this bar. I'm going to have two drinks in, in an hour and a half. And then the rest I'll just drink seltzer water or something like that. You do stuff like that. Yeah. You know. Um, or you like alternate. You have a drink and then you have a seltzer water. Then you yeah. have a drink. That yeah. can be a good way to pace yourself. Well, and I also did the whole, you know, nothing for a month and a half and, you know, sort of calm myself down. But you're not like drinking, you know, waking up and being like, God, I want to drink in the morning. No, no, no. Never like that. Never like that. No. All right. Um, and so you might not be in L.A. for that much longer. No, I, I really like L.A. And I, I um, well, I love, hate it, I guess. But um, New York's too expensive. And uh, even though I grew up there and I really love it there, I, um, you know, that whole Brooklyn writer scene thing is, seems like a nightmare to me and a, a good way to get in a lot of trouble. So I, I, I have this apartment here. It's 1100 bucks a month. It seems reasonable. It's right, you know, it's right in West Hollywood, Hollywood. Yeah. Um, it's a exposed brick studio. It's above a horn shop across the street from a fire department. It's loud as hell, but I like it. It's <laughs> yeah. fine. Uh, uh, so I don't have any plans to just like leave, you know, in fact, right now I'm like subletting it out and making a grand on it every month and staying with your girlfriend. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And sort of traveling around. And then I go to, I'm going to the Sun Valley writers conference tomorrow. Uh, and then I go to Swanee. I got one of those things. That's cool. Yeah. How long are you going to be there? Up there for like five days. Then I go to, you go to Swanee for two weeks or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go to Sun Valley. I've never been there. Me neither. It's beautiful. Yeah, I hear, and I hear it's like actually like a really enjoyable conference. I don't know, but you're going to be like a visiting artist. I'm going to be. So the library got like the local library is having me and Marissa go up there and do a talk, um, uh, sort of interviewing one another, and then we actually got we're going to be on a new writers panel in the conference itself. Uh, I think on Friday. Um, which I haven't thought about yet, but I'm gonna I'm gonna think about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it's been fun talking to you, man. Hey, I wish you luck. Congratulations on the book. Thank best, you, man. Best of luck on this Esquire piece that is like metastasizing and growing into. Oh, it's weird. God knows what. Yes. But it sounds interesting. It sounds like all, all great uh, books seem to, you know, begin as harebrained ideas. Uh-huh. Is that true? I don't know. It sounds true. I have true. no idea. <laughs> sounds true. But I like this like idea of like it's urgent. There's an urgency to it. Like I just, I don't know. I just have to tell it this way. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Okay. Well, Best. good luck to you and that uh, you know, the baby that's about to come out of your wife. She could be delivering right now. My right phone, now. my phone's on silent. I have no idea what's <laughs> Oh, great. Cool. <laughs> All right, man. Awesome. All right, guys. I thought I would transition with something uh soothing. After that uh, conversation with Matt Summel. Matt Summel, ladies and gentlemen, his novel and stories making nice is out there from uh, Henry Holt. Right now, go get your copy. Buy it. Cradle it. You can find Matt online at mattsummel.com. He's also on Twitter. His handle over there is at Matt Summel. By the way, it's you know obviously these interviews were conducted before the birth of my son. Uh, just to give you a little bit of an uh, overview, I was banking interviews, trying to record ahead of time so that I would have them on hand. 
after the birth. I was preparing for this moment, is what I'm saying. But if it feels a little bit out of sorts, time-wise, or chronology-wise, bear with me. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the uh, most of the music. This is not a Kill Rockstars uh, track right here. This is called Midnight in Paris. And uh, it's very soothing. <laughs> Don't forget about that app, guys. Go get the Other People app. It's free. Sign up for premium. That's not free, but it's very cheap. Support this podcast for 75 cents a month. Can you make that commitment? You can email me if you want. Uh, let me know what your thoughts are on the uh, app, on your life. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. So everything's going great. Uh, I've been working a night shift with my uh, child. That's my duty. I stay up. I feed him. We have these weird, uh, you know, very uh, sweet moments in the dark of night. My God, there's a giant spider crawling down the wall in front of me right now. Absolutely enormous. Jesus. But yeah, my child's doing well. We just took him to the pediatrician for his uh, two-week appointment. Everything's checking out. He's gaining weight. The other day, I was sitting him on the counter late at night after feeding him. He was kind of awake. He has what I call a milk face. Like when you feed a baby, you sort of go into this weird like zen state afterwards. His eyes were open. He was looking at me. His mouth was kind of hanging open. He was very happy, it seemed. And I said, River, I'm so happy you're here. I'm kind of having a tender moment with my son in the dark of night. And I thought we were making eye contact. I thought we were connecting. River, I'm so happy you're here, buddy. I knew you were coming. That kind of thing. And then uh, there was like a, a beat of silence, and then he just burped <laughs> right in my face. Please remember that Hugo Wolf died mad and that Emil Verheren died after falling under a train. That's it for now. Thanks again to Matt Summel. Go get Making Nice. Uh, you know, check it out. He's a funny guy. He's a funny writer. You'll enjoy it. It's a great summer read. We're now in uh, August. Aren't these the official dog days of summer? Are you getting, you're sick of being hot. Now you want to be cold and then you'll be sick of being cold. That's the way this works. We're never happy, are we? (laughs) 